Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Barely Backcountry Podcast. Today's guest is Jeff Cordero, who is kind of the up-and-comer on the archery YouTube scene, but I've been really enjoying some of the content he's been putting out, both with hunting stuff and some target archery stuff, so make sure you guys go check out his YouTube channel. I think you guys will enjoy it. We also have a really good conversation, a fun conversation about his day job, where he is a part of a NASCAR pit crew team. So enjoyed that part, had a lot of fun talking to Jeff. I hope you guys enjoy it. But before I get you guys into that, um, again, check out the podcast on social media. It's barely underscore backcountry underscore podcast on Instagram. And then my personal is c.dillashaw. Again, get, make sure you guys give the podcast a like, a follow, a share. All those things help out. I appreciate you guys listening, and I'll get you guys into this conversation with Jeff Cordero. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Barely Backcountry Podcast. Today we got somebody on who is an archer, both a target archer and a bow hunter. Um, he has a pretty cool day job that we'll get into a little bit at the, at the end of the podcast. He's also doing the YouTube thing now, but today I got Jeff Cordero on. So Jeff, Thanks how's for it going, buddy? Me. It's good. Good, good. Cool. Well, I kind of want to talk about, let's talk about the archery stuff first. How did you get into archery and bow hunting and all that? Um, I got into archery through some of the guys I used to work with uh, at another race team I worked on. Okay. And it just, we did a lot of carpooling because it was a long drive to work. Yeah. Those guys kind of, they were into the archery stuff. I would call it recreationally. And, uh, yeah, I just kind of, you know, listening to them. It sounded like fun and something I kind of wanted to get into. Yeah, nice. So did you, you didn't grow up hunting at all or anything like that? Is that something you got into later in life or? No, I didn't grow up hunting. Um, I remember my dad shooting two deer off the back porch when we lived in Connecticut. And that's about the extent of the hunting that, uh, that I was, you know, brought up with um it just wasn't you know i that's not what i got from my parents so yeah yeah, i just kind of for me here in north carolina i just kind of looked out and said you know what what opportunities do i have to hunt and archery season was the longest opportunity for me to do it so it seemed like the most reasonable option nice nice what was kind of you mentioned some of the guys that you worked with got you into that but what what was your journey as far as you know getting a bow, learning all that stuff. Like, how did you go about that? Yeah. So I had like, I didn't know what to do, what to get. So I went to a, uh, a pawn shop that was actually a kind of a bow shop at the same time. And, uh, I walked in there and I was, I looked for a, just off the shelf, ready to go package. Cause I didn't know what pieces, what parts I needed. Yeah. I didn't know what was good, what wasn't. Yep. So I ended up getting a, uh, a Bowtech assassin with all of the site, release uh arrow rest stabilizers everything on it ready to go so i had him cut me a few arrows went home and just proceeded to lose all of those really fast <laughs> yeah all right so you just kind of started learning on your own you didn't have a coach or take lessons or anything like that nope i asked those guys that i worked with you know some really basic questions and i would say i was kind of not i wouldn't call it embarrassed but i was maybe a little too prideful to ask for some help when I should have. Uh, I've always just kind of figured things out on my own and just tried to put it together myself because I kind of enjoy that journey of, you know, getting something new, figuring it out, getting into the weeds of it and trying to figure out how to get better at it and make myself better. So I kind of took it as a challenge. But at the same time, if I would have maybe gotten a little help in the beginning and maybe, you know, sucked up my pride a little bit, that would have helped me a little bit more get going. Nice. Were there anybody, like for me, when I got into archery, like I pretty much just like 
idolized and looked at everything, you know, the guys like John Dudley and Cam Haynes were doing. And that's how I learned. Was there those guys for you? Oh, absolutely. So as soon as I kind of got into this and I was like, this is something I really like doing. And I think part of it, too, was I kind of I mean, I grew up shooting firearms and I liked shooting guns, but it's kind of hard to do that when you live in a neighborhood. So the archery thing was a great way for me just to get outside and shoot a lot and just kind of, you know, use it as like therapy, just time for myself to just go out there and shoot, and not have to think about anything. And finding a lot of those guys like following people on social media like cam haynes john dudley's it really it just that's where i started to get a lot of my information from and that really helped me once i started to really you know wanting to get into this and focus into it and figure out what i want to do following those guys and just figuring out what they're doing and try to you know copy them or mimic them uh because obviously they're really good at what they do and it's always i guess it's a compliment yeah for sure, yeah. Those guys are, are great at what they do. And like I said, John Dudley, that was that was the pretty much how I learned how to shoot and you know, his release and his coaching kind of cured my target panic that I had for a little bit. But he's got such great content and the way he yeah. talks about it, he talks about it at such a basic level that anybody can understand. He doesn't talk really fast, he doesn't glaze over anything. Yep. The information that he puts on YouTube is amazing it's by far better than most of the other stuff out there when it comes trying to figure it out yourself yeah definitely yeah there aren't there aren't very many people out there i'm sure there are plenty of guys i mean you look at the professionals out there now that are you know better shots than dudley i'm not saying dudley is a bad shot by any means because he's one of the greatest but as far as coaching goes i don't think there's many people better than john dudley no i mean there's probably i mean there's probably a handful of coaches that he would definitely classify with as being some of the best ones yeah, definitely. So what at what point in your archery career, when did you go on your first hunt? Like your first bow hunt? How long uh, so my first bow hunt was probably, I think I picked up the bow in late June. Okay. And September, uh, it's like September 18th. Usually it's middle of September here in North Carolina. Archery season opens up. And I, like for me, I had no land to go hunt on because I lived on a quarter of an acre. Uh, we have a little bit of public land here in North Carolina, but it, it gets heavily hunted and it's really hard. I didn't have a tree stand, so I'm, I'm out there still hunting whitetails nice. on the ground, which was, if you can imagine, oh, very yeah. unsuccessful. <laughs> yep. I didn't see anything the first year, uh, barely got into anything at all. And the only deer I saw were deer driving to and from the public land and people's fields. Nice. 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 Yeah, I've done one whitetail hunt um, in my life. Some of my, some of the family on my dad's side, they owned some property down in Alabama, and I went down there and I sat in a tree stand for a week and didn't see a single deer. So that was cool. Oh, yeah, it happens. <laughs> but um, yeah. So then, <clears throat> when did you have your first successful hunt? What was that? So the following year, uh, I kind of did. Uh, if you guys, there's uh, a channel on YouTube, Seek One. Those guys hunt a lot of like urban deer in Atlanta. Yeah. It was, I didn't had, I hadn't seen their channel yet, but um, talking to people around me, you know, everyone's like, oh, you gotta, you gotta find private land if you're going to think about being successful. So me not knowing anyone, I just honestly went around, looked at, you know, Onyx and I found the pieces of land that were five acres or bigger and okay. i just went around and knocked on doors uh just asking for permission and i think it was probably 
I don't know, the 30th door I knocked on. Uh, I had a guy who was like, I'm not going to let you hunt on my land, but you should go talk to my cousin who lives the next street over and around the corner. Mm-hmm. And I went and talked to him. And he was, he asked me a few questions. We chatted for a little bit. And he was all about it. He's like, yeah, come on out. Uh, pretty much the deal was is if you split the meat, you know, if you give me some meat, you have permission here. And as long as you take care of the property and you don't, you know, tear up the driveway or do anything yeah. irresponsible, then you can hunt here as long as you want. Nice. Nice. Yeah, so that gave me an opportunity, and in North Carolina, we can bait, so I laid out a bunch of corn and just kind of sat there for a few days, and you just waited for deer to come, and finally got an opportunity on a doe and was able to capitalize, and I was like, oh, man. And then at that point, I was like, this is what I want to do. This is awesome. This is fun, and it makes up for all those times sitting there and the whole year of, you know, the year before of not even seeing anything. That one moment right there was kind of the thing that solidified me as this is what this is that this feeling I have right now, I want to do this every year. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Once you, once you get that, I mean, even the first year I went hunting and didn't see a single deer, I was immediately like, all right, I can't wait to do this again next year. Like this is something I want to do forever. So I can imagine, I mean, you know, once you do get that first kill that just amplifies that feeling, but yeah, I think hunting, once you do it, it's kind of one of those things you're either, 100% 100% sold on it or it's you decide it's not really your thing so. yeah I I haven't really I've been on a few you know hunts or I've been in situations where in the moment they kind of suck but oh, those yeah. are the ones that make for good stories you know a month later definitely yeah I mean I've talked about it a few times on this podcast but I had a, a pretty rough pack out um, last hunting season and during that I'm like this is stupid I'm never never doing this again but as soon as I get back home and I'm like, all right, I can't wait to do that again next year. So, hundred percent. But so it looks. I was looking at some of your like YouTube videos and all that. It looks like you've been out west for a few hunts. Is that right? Yeah, I it kind of made that decision. I mean, well, I'm sure we'll get into it. What I do for work, but for me, I'm really busy throughout the whole years from February until early November. I have really no time to go do some things. After following some of these guys like Dudley and Cam Haynes on, on Instagram and YouTube, it was like, I seen what they were doing. And I was like, man, that looks like so much fun because I grew up, you know, in the woods. Uh, I grew up hiking. I grew up in Boy Scouts. I'm an Eagle Scout. So like just being outside in nature and doing all that, that's super exciting for me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I can compare or I can put that and hunting together. That's like the ultimate, you know, adventure getaway for me. Yeah. But I never thought that I would have the time to do it. And I kind of just made a decision when I got into my like early 30s. I was like, you know what? I'm not going to wait another 10 years to go do this. I'm just going to figure it out with the little time that I have. And I'm going to go and try to do it every year because I just don't want to leave. I don't want to have look back and be like, man, I wish I would have done that when I was younger. Or I yep. wish I would have taken more risk and more opportunity when I had the chance to do it. Mm-hmm. Nice. So what what hunts have you done out west? So my first one was in over-the-counter Colorado elk hunt, uh, which wasn't that bad. I mean, I fully expected to go there and not see anything for an entire week because you hear the the stories. There's hunters around every tree. You're going to run into 70 people a day. And, you know, I took the the advice that other people have talked about was get off the trail and go as far in as you can. And with me, with the time I have, there's only so far I can go. I got about two miles in and I was in elk the first day and I was like, 
oh man this e-scouting thing is great this is is awesome yeah (laughs) i couldn't i never got a chance to capitalize on that but just getting into elk it was like that lit a fire under my ass where i was like i'm gonna do this every year i'm not gonna skip a year i'm gonna figure out a way to go because this was just the adrenaline rush you know you get there and you get elk bugling at you like 20 30 yards away you're like oh my god this is what it's like yeah, definitely. I mean, and for that being your first elk hunt, just that is a success. So. Oh, for sure. I mean, I was disappointed. I went home with, you know, no meat, but I went home with a great, you know, I had a great time. I got an elk. I learned a lot. I got my butt kicked because the next few days after that, I was in nothing. Yeah. You know, I did run into a few hunters, but I kind of expected it. Yep. So, uh, the following year, or actually, let me backtrack. The first, the year before that, I went on a Wyoming cow tag with a buddy of mine in late november right before the season closed that was really my opportunity uh looking at you know how much elk tags cost out west they're not cheap so it was kind of one of those this reduced price cow tag in wyoming looked like a great opportunity to go out there and just kind of feel it out and see what it's going to be it was a rifle hunt i was actually successful on that one we got a cow on the ground which was nice i mean not a huge cow, but I mean, got one down. So yeah. that was kind of one of those things. I was like, all right, this is what I want to do. This is great. And then I'm like, next time I come out here, I want to come out with a bull tag in my pocket. You know, I'm, I'm riding that high. Like, oh, this is, I can do this. Yep. And then I went on that Colorado hunt and kind of just got my butt kicked, but had a great experience. And then the following year, which was last year, I went on a same thing. I went on a, the combo tag in Montana for elk and mule deer and i actually had a shot on both elk and mule deer but never never actually took the shot because i just i wasn't really comfortable with the situation i was in yeah but just being able to see both of those on the same hunt and be in them i was like next year (laughs) yeah nice nice so let's talk about the hunting season that just wrapped up a few months ago how did your how did your fall go go for you last year Fall wasn't terrible. Um, I was able to get a buck down in North Carolina uh, early, really early in the season. So I got that checked off the board and then uh, went to Montana, was unsuccessful there. And then I kind of gave up on hunting season a little early because uh, we actually moved. Uh, So I had a lot going on, just moving houses and just trying to, we actually bought more property. So I moved out of the development I'm in. Now I live on 12 acres and I can sit here and watch these deer walk through my backyard every night. But it seemed like every night I went to go sit in the tree stand, they were nowhere to be seen. <laughs> yeah. That seems to happen quite a bit from everybody I talked to. <laughs> yeah. Those deer are a little sneaky, but it's like they know. Yeah. So other than that one cow hunt, have you had a successful Western hunt, like bow hunt yet? Uh, nope, that's not, not been successful with my bow out West. Okay. So still working on that. Do you have plans to come out West again this year? Absolutely. Uh, I did not draw a tag in Arizona, which I was kind of bummed about. I had decent odds or at least better odds than I've had in previous years. Yeah. Um, but we still got a few draws out there and I'm definitely going to come out in September again. That's just a, it's almost a non-negotiable at this point. Yeah. And then uh, I might come out again later in the season and try some of the, you know, mule deer hunting in the December. Nice. What, state are, you, uh, what state are you looking at? 
just out of all, all of them. All, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I I'm kind of late to the game, you know, getting in tags and or building points in a lot of these states to get good tags. So yeah. for me, it's all about opportunity. It's you know, what can I draw with three points? What kind of rotation can I get on where I know I'm going to get a tag every year? Yep. And uh, so I have. I'm in. I'm going to be in Montana. I'm applying for the draw in New Mexico, building points, or at least applying in Utah. It's going to be hard to draw a tag, but I'm yeah. doing it. Uh, same thing in Colorado. Just anywhere the states that offer the opportunities to build points or give you at least decent odds. Those are the ones I'm in. I'm trying to be anywhere I can. Definitely. Yeah, I, I'm in that same boat of just looking for opportunity hunts. I'm not trying to chase. You know, even the states that I'm, you know, the state I'm a resident of, I'm not chasing that, you know, top, top unit. I'm looking for those units I can draw, you know, one, two points. So. Yeah, for me, like the the hunts that really intrigued me when I look at all the Western states are those late season Arizona elk archery hunts. Yep. I know people talk about how hard they are and, you know, the success rates are low and mm-hmm. there's extremely hard hunts. But for me... I'm not as worried about how hard the hunt is going to be. I'm worried about, you know, where can I get my time? And for me, when I can get my time, it's during those seasons. So I want to, that's for me, I'd rather trade and I'd rather go for a harder hunt knowing I have more time to do it than the typical five days that I get. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, those late season hunts, like you said, they are hard, but they are such a good opportunity. You know, by that time of the year, most other seasons have, have wrapped up at least for archery. Um, you know, you're coming down south to Arizona, so it's not, you're not going to hunt, you know, Wyoming or Montana where you got below freezing temperatures in that time of the year. So you not have to deal with that. But yeah, those are a great opportunity, especially for non-residents that just want to be able to come and hunt Arizona. Yeah. And I mean, if I look at some of the draws in Arizona, like I'm never going to draw an Arizona unit nine tag. Like yeah. that's not going to happen for me to draw a, a 27 tag or a unit one tag. That's not going to, ha- I'll be, 60 by the time I draw that with point creep and everything the way it is, but I can go hunt those units like three times in the late season. By the time it would take me to draw it once. Yeah. I'd rather stack my days in the field than just wait years for a chance. Definitely. Yeah. And I mean, Arizona, like there is a slim chance, you know, even if you have zero points, you can draw the top unit in the state, but the odds are very, very slim. So I mean, you could play the strategy a little bit, you know, putting those that as your first choice, and then a late hunt is your second choice. But yeah, oh, if you I just shoot for the moon on that first choice. What was that? I'm shooting for the moon on that first choice oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah, that that's that's always my strategy for pretty much any state. But yeah, I mean, there is a chance, but more than likely, it, it won't happen. So, like you said, those late hunts that you can come out and you know, I was just talking with uh, you know, Mark Livesey on the last podcast I did, or one of the last podcasts I did, and you know, we were talking about ways to, you know, get better at hunting. And the number one way is just experience. So those, you know, if you can come out and hunt Arizona, you know, three, four times, you know, that's just more experience, more, more stuff you can learn. So if you do draw that top unit in whatever state you have those experiences already, and you're not going in there with a once in a lifetime tag, but you don't have any experience or knowledge to back it up. Yeah. And being out East here, you know, I have plenty of I have friends that are like, oh man, I'd love to go do that, but I just don't have any points or, you know, I'd love to go do that. I just don't, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, you're a, you're not going to get points unless you start building points and B, you're not going to get experience unless you just go. 
and you know everyone's like i oh, just it's you know and for me i kind of had that and i was like i'm never gonna if i don't go do it i'm never gonna go do it so exactly. i'm just like i'm just gonna go do it yeah yeah for sure and i mean like you said, i mean people make those excuses but ultimately if you look at the opportunities out west there's no reason that if you wanted if you really really wanted to you can't come out here to hunt at least one state if not multiple states a year yeah, and I, again, when I first started, I did not realize the opportunity, you know, that there was out west to go hunting. Uh, I just, out east, there's no public land anywhere. Like, the yeah. percentage of states, like, you might have, you know, a half a percent of North Carolina is public land. And then you go to a state like Arizona where it's like 90% of it's public land. Yep. So, it's kind of one of those, you just don't, I don't know, it's, you don't realize the opportunity you have until you actually look into it and you're like, Oh man, what, I've been missing out on all of this. And I, I pay for this in taxes. Like I have to go use this. Yep. Definitely. Definitely. Well, cool. So getting off the hunting stuff, I've seen that you kind of are jumping into the target archery side, um, fairly recently. How's that going for you? Oh, I got my butt kicked this year. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's definitely fun and it's an experience. And for me, uh, I've just, I'm very competitive in everything yep. I've done. And like my job is to compete. So that is very like ingrained in who I am. Mm -hmm. And it kind of like, I watched a little bit of the target stuff a few years ago. I saw Vegas. I was like, man, that looks really cool. Mm -hmm. But I just, again, I kind of, not that I didn't think I could do it. It was just not knowing how to get into it. Not yep. having that, you know, that easy barrier to get in. Uh, and luckily I, I had met a few people in the industry. This is before I started any of the YouTube stuff okay. and that were just friends of mine. And through a few contacts, I got a hold of, uh, Chuck Cooley, who has been doing this for a really long time. And he really kind of opened the door for me and was like, Hey, this is, this is where you should start. This is what you should do. You know, and he kind of just kind of laid out a roadmap for me, you know, on an hour phone call of kind of where to go. And yeah. I immediately started scouring you know, Facebook groups, forums online, looking for used target equipment. Yep. Because for me, I'm a guy who's all in when I get into something. Oh, yeah. But I, I like to at least maybe dip my toes in the beginning and just get something that's, you know, halfway there or three quarters of the way to all in mm -hmm. and shoot it for a little bit and be like, okay, I'm committed to this. Let's go. And then that's where I dump, you know, the 401k into it. But <laughs> it was a good, it's a, Target archery is such a challenge mentally to be so repetitive over yeah. and over and over again that it's the little nuances of it that keep me like driving to get better. And the, those are the exact same things that frustrate the hell out of me, you know, when it's not going right. Definitely. Definitely. What's your, what's your setup? What are you shooting right now for target archery? So right now I have a TRX 40. Uh, I have an Excel site with an ultra view scope, a Hamski drop away rest shooting PS 27s at 60 pounds. Cause uh, USA archery for internationals, I had to be at 60. Yeah. So it's, uh, the reason why I went with Matthews was because I shoot a V three X 33 for my hunting bow last yeah. year. And it was, there's not a bow shop around me that has a lot of target bows to shoot. So it's not like I could have gone and shot a bunch of different brands to figure out what I actually liked. Nope. I just went, you know, Hey, I shoot a Matthews. I like the way this feels. I'm just going to go get one. And I went and found one used and I like it. 
Yeah. Yeah, I'm shooting the the TRX 38. I like the I like that bow a lot. Um I have the the V3 for my hunting bow. Um yeah, I've been a big fan of Matthews and their bows for a while, but yeah, the target side like you said it is especially indoor stuff. It is such a a mental game. You know, I mean, you look at a Vegas round, you essentially have to make yourself do the exact same thing for 30 arrows in a row, which if people have never done it, might sound easy, but it, I challenge you to go out there and shoot a Vegas round and see how hard it actually is. Oh, and I explained it to people, like, what you're trying to do. You, you know, you're trying to hit a penny at 20 yards, and yeah. then they look at a penny, and they're like, you can't hit that with those big tree trunk arrows? And I'm like, no, I can, but can I do it for 90 straight shots? That's the problem. <laughs> or, you know, 30 straight shots per day. Like, that's where the struggle begins, and then... You know, you have a good shot that maybe misses just a little bit, and then you're kind of in your head, or you have one that hits, but you didn't think was going to hit, mm-hmm. and then you just kind of, it's that it's that mental game between your ears that is the big differentiator at that event. All those guys can shoot really good, uh, yeah. all those men and women can, but it's who has the mental capacity to just grind it out and be even keel the whole weekend. Definitely. Yeah, I mean... I, I just got my target bow at the beginning there, so I didn't have much time to shoot indoor stuff, but just a little bit that I did. I mean, I I enjoyed it from the, the challenge aspect and having that, you know, set score, that 300 that you're trying to chase, you can very easily see your growth on that. Um, but now it's it's outdoor season where I'm at now. So have you, have you jumped into the 3D stuff yet? So unfortunately, I... I don't do the 3D. Uh, I just don't have the time to do it. My weekends are, that's when I work. So I'm kind of booked up on the weekends. So for me, this time of year is kind of just kind of getting ready for uh, total archery challenge and, you know, just getting ready for hunting season already. So uh, doing some YouTube videos, reviewing bows, getting new equipment, trying new stuff out. So for me, this is kind of that like, middle part of the year where I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do already for August and September. Yeah, definitely. I would love to go shoot some 3d. That's not, that looks awesome. I've done some 3d courses before and had a blast doing it. Yeah. And the challenge aspect of that looks awesome. But unfortunately I just, maybe when I'm done racing, I'll get into that. Yeah. Yeah. 3d, 3d is fun. I almost find sometimes 3d can be a little bit more frustrating than indoor. For me, just I don't I don't know why I've done two of them over the last month or so, and I don't know. It's just when you know how good you can shoot, and you're not shooting that good, and you're just missing targets and all that stuff. It's not. It can get a little frustrating, but yeah. But I mean, you can say the same thing for indoor as well, because uh, well, in your side of the country, ASA is pretty big over there, right? Oh, it's huge. Everyone's yeah. down here shooting ASAs. Yep. Yeah, over here on on the west coast. I wish we had the ASA was big over here, but unfortunately it's not. Um, a lot of the big stuff are the, the safari type shoots where you're shooting those big orange dots on those 3D targets like Redding. Um, Which I, I almost feel like that's, I mean, that's really more closely related to indoor because yeah. you have that big old dot that you're trying to shoot at. So you're trying to keep that pin inside of it. And like when it doesn't hit, it's, you know, half the time at some of these ASAs where you don't have a, you know, a mark on the target you're shooting at a spot where you think the circle is or you know it should be, and you really don't have that, you know, did I hit it, did I not, until you get to the target, and then you just pull your arrows out. You don't have that much time to think about it before the next one. 
the safari is almost worse when you shoot it look through your binos and you're like oh okay yeah definitely definitely are you doing pretty much all of like your bow setups and tuning on your own or do you have like a, a pro shop that you really trust to do all that or um i do it a lot myself and i think that's from the background that i have um working in racing working in nascar i just not that i don't trust the shops that i've gone to or yeah. the shops that i do go to um but i'm just i'm one of those guys that not that i can do it better but i'm just going to pay more attention to like the really fine details yep. than other people i feel like i'm not saying that there's anything wrong with going to your shop and that shops don't pay attention to the details it's just me personally i get a satisfaction from like doing it all myself and like knowing that i'm the one who put this together and that if something's not right it's my fault you know yeah but yeah i think once you get to the point where you are trying to reach a high level in competitive archery or be you know very effective as a hunter like ultimately you're the one shooting the bow you know how it feels you know how you want it to feel and if you know how to make those changes to the bow to make it do what you want to do like you almost have to be able to do that you have to know how to work on your own stuff to get to that that high level i think and by no means am i a master bow tech and know what i'm doing uh, a lot of like 99 percent of the stuff i've learned has been through trials and tribulations or youtube videos there's still things that if you know i'm gonna build a bow this week if i need to figure out God, how do i do that i'm gonna be youtubing it like that's where i get a lot of my information from and it's because i don't work on them all the time i work on them enough Mm-hmm. but not all the time where I'm just like very proficient like a shop is. So it's not to say that I know what I'm doing. I've just, I've screwed up enough stuff <laughs> to know how to get it right. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to working on bows, like I, I'm a bow tech for, that's my job. Um, So I get to work on them all the time, but like, I mean, every bow is, yeah, you can look at the string configuration. They're a little bit different, but working on a bow is working on a bow. Like, how you fix one thing on one bow is pretty much the exact same for every other bow. So it's, I wouldn't, I mean, there are certain levels to it and there are guys that, you know, are phenomenal bow techs that I'll probably never be close to the skill level of, but just having a general understanding of how your bow works and how to fix it and, you know, how to make certain adjustments to it. it it's not very hard. Like you said, going on YouTube is a huge, is a huge tool and can, you can learn a lot very quickly, very easily um, through that just by having the right tools and looking in the right places. I think having an under like you said, having an understanding on how things work uh, with your equipment will um, like that immediately will make you better at what you're doing because you're understanding what's going on. And when something happens, you can kind of instead of just like, hey, this isn't shooting right and having to drive all the way back to the pro shop, you can be like, yeah. hey, this isn't really shooting right. Let me, you know, is my arrow rest not going down all the way or is my sight way off because I bumped it getting in the truck, like having just a general understanding of how things work. Yep. is it you know it's going to immediately help you just be better at archer definitely definitely tell me about this uh like the youtube thing you're doing now where did that idea come from why did you want to start that and all that so that was my wife's idea uh i've been doing a lot of the archery stuff before and it just it was kind of one of those things that i've definitely grown a passion for and this is kind of a this is a long term you know, goal for me, like right now, YouTube's not, it's not how I make money. It's not a generator for me right now. It's a fun, it's a passion project because I like doing it. Uh, but ultimately 
once my career as an athlete is over, I'm going to have to do something after that. And she was like, well, why don't, why don't you start now? Like, you know, you know, kind of what you're doing. And it's not that you have to be an expert to be on YouTube because there are like, there's the John Dudleys in the world who are on YouTube. They're there to teach and they're there to explain things. And then there's other channels like, you know, born and raised outdoors or, you know, elk shape or some of these other ones where they're out there kind of telling a story throughout the year that it's, it's kind of like a vlog, but it's kind of just like a, Hey, this is our journey, what we're going through. Yep. And that's kind of, I'm not saying I'm in the middle of those two because I don't feel like I, I'm a, I'm a, not that I'm a great teacher. I just don't feel like I have the information that a lot of those other guys do, but a lot of it was, Hey, I struggled through this or I figured this out. I just want to share that information with you. And if you find it helpful, great, you know, awesome. And these are the experiences, these are the adventures I'm going on. And just to bring people along with it, because I will say I probably watch more YouTube videos, hunting videos than I do regular TV. It's, it's what I get. I mean, that's like, if you watch, look at my view hours on YouTube, it's far surpasses anything else I do. And being a consumer of it, I was like, if I can give back to it a little bit where, you know, someone else can find these videos, either find inspiration or figure something out or pick up a little nugget. And then that's a plus. Definitely. Yeah. I would say for myself, it's kind of the same thing with this podcast and I have intentions of growing, you know, into other avenues of content creation, but you know, yeah, like, like you said, like I'm not an expert on anything I've ever talked about on this podcast. That's why I have people on that are, um, and we're all learning together. And if, you know, the people that are listening, if they can learn, learn something from it, you know, that that's the goal here. So. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've definitely listened to some of your podcasts and it's been great having the people that you've had on. It's, you know, you're doing a great job with it. Thank you. Yeah. It's, it's fun. Like, I mean, content, I mean, I feel like a lot of, you know, people that grew up, you know, that are around my age, I grew up kind of when the whole, you know, being a YouTuber thing was that like craze and was the cool thing to do. And, you know, I remember middle school and high school wanting to do that. And like content creation has always been something that I've kind of been interested in. And I just finally decided one day that I'm, I'm just going to do it. And now here we are six months into it and I'm having fun with it. So we'll see, that, see where it goes, but that's the biggest thing with anyone who wants to start an avenue like this, especially reaching out to other people, being podcasts, you know, Instagram, you know, being kind of like a an influencer, I'm using quotes or like, right. you know, being on YouTube, it's, you have to, like, for me, I have to have the right intentions to do it because yep. if I was just doing it because I wanted to be that thing and I didn't enjoy the thing, what I was actually doing, it'd be so much harder. Like I enjoy doing the YouTube stuff, whether it never pays me another dime, I'm still going to do it because I enjoy doing it. And I think that's what makes it easy. And that's, Hopefully that comes across, you know, in my videos and the content that like, I actually enjoy doing this. Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I've looked at, you know, quite a few of your YouTube videos over the last week or so when we started talking and I knew I was going to get you on the podcast. I went through and watched a lot of them. And yeah, I think, I mean, people can definitely enjoy it or definitely tell that you enjoy what you're doing. Um, And, you know, I, I enjoy watching your videos. I think you put out some good content. So I'd look forward to seeing what you do in the future with it. Yeah. But what, what's your kind of like long-term plan are you trying to make the content creation thing your career once you're done with what you're doing now or is it just a hobby type thing or right now it's just a hobby uh i'm just gonna kind of continue to grow it as it organically grows mm -hmm. and if it turns into something where it 
can then be a, you know, an avenue of revenue for me, then I will take it that way. But I have, it's not, I'm not trying to force it. Uh, it's when it gets there, it gets there, if it gets there. Yep. And yeah, I just, I would like, like personally, selfishly, I would love for it to be, I'd love it when I'm done racing, that I have enough of a following that I can go hunting and get paid to do it. That's ultimately the goal. Like if I can be done racing and just get paid to go hunting and film videos, man, that would be, that would be two dreams I've had stacked on top of each other. Like most people don't get to follow their passions and their dreams for their careers once in their life for me to be able to do it twice. That'd be such a blessing. Definitely. Definitely. Well, let's kind of, we've talked about it or mentioned a few times what you do as your as your actual job so let's get into that because it is it is pretty cool something that you you know you don't see a lot of people doing it so tell everybody what you kind of do for a living working for nascar yeah so i am a nascar tire changer i uh pit the 24 car for william byron in the nascar cup series i change so on a pit crew there's five guys you have a front tire changer a rear tire changer a jackman and a tire carrier and a gas man me personally, I change front tires. So I jump out in front of the car, change both the right and the left front tire. And that, as as little as I was as a kid, watching it on TV, going to the racetrack as a little kid, I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And I kind of got to a point in my life where I needed to make you know adult decisions. I was either going to continue with college and struggle my way through it, or I was going to drop out of college and move to North Carolina from Connecticut and just pursue this dream to go racing. And that's what I ended up doing because I had, I was not good in college. Me sitting in a classroom, reading books and trying to study. That's just not what I do. I am very more hands-on. I'm very, I'm better with my hands and figuring out problems and just working than I am sitting there reading a book. So following that career and following that passion to go racing was just, it was kind of a no brainer for me. And uh, I've been doing that. This is my 14th season now. So it, that's really the only job I've had as an adult is pitting race cars. And it's been it's been awesome. I've been very fortunate to do it. I've been fortunate enough to work with some of the very best in the sport and do some really awesome things that most people won't be able to do once in their career. I've been able to do it multiple times. So it's uh, it's definitely awesome. Nice. How do you like how do you get into that? How do you learn? Like, obviously, I would assume. Most people, especially adult men, know how to or at least should know how to change a tire. But just changing a tire on the side of the road and doing it how you guys do it are completely different things. So how do you learn how to do it that quickly and how do you get into that as a career? For sure. So it's it's a very niche job or niche job. It's not something that, you know, you go to your, you know, trade schools or, you know, it's not career day path when you're in high school, you know, what you're going to do outside of it. So there is a school in North Carolina, it's called the Pitt School, and they kind of give you, you can go there, it's like an eight-week program, and they give you a general, very top-of-the-surface, glazed-over education on how to do each one of the positions, and it is, when you come out of that thing, you are by no means ready to go to the racetrack or even be (laughs) considered for a tryout for a team, but it is, it's just the very basics, you know, it's like, Hey, this is how you draw the bow back. And this is how you put the peep and the scope housing together to kind of get towards the target. Like it's not even going to the point where you're even trying to level the bow. You're just, it's just the very basics. So then it's on you at that point to 
you know, spend the time with yourself and really kind of hone your craft. And it's one of those jobs that experience is king. You're never going to be, you're never going to do anything to leapfrog experience, no matter how hard you try. You just, you have to do it. You have to expose yourself. You have to fail. Uh, we go to the racetrack 40 times a year. And if you win one or two races a year, that is a huge accomplishment. So there is a lot of losing in the sport. Mm-hmm. So you just kind of have to get used to it. You get an opportunity with the team. And then it's just about really honing your craft. I mean, that's why I think the archery and the NASCAR things are, they're closely related, but they're also really far apart. Like archery, you're trying to be really relaxed and calm and let the shot happen where in NASCAR, we're doing four tires and 16 gallons of gas in nine and a half seconds. So there is no calm. There's no relaxed. Everything is, it's very fast. It's very, you know, it's happening in front of you instead of you trying to figure out how to do it. It's almost like you're watching yourself do it when everything's going right. So it's, yeah, it's just one of those things you just, it's really, it's a hard deal to get into, but if you can get into it and you can really commit yourself um athletically and mentally to do it you can have a pretty good career nice well how did you get onto your first race team and was that first one in nascar did you start some on a lower level or uh i started on the first car i ever worked on was a kid in high school had a car and it was just at a local short track back home there's thousands of them across the country there's probably one within an hour of you you know just where they're you know any Tom, Dick and Harry's racing on the weekend, you know, Uncle yeah. Steve's got a race car and you go there and you bang fenders. I, that's where I started. It's not like I started in this grand, you know, grand cup series. I, I yeah. started at the lowest of levels and kind of worked my way up, just met people, you know, asked to help them out. I did a lot of working on race cars for free when I was in my teen years, but I just enjoyed it so much. And it's something that I just, I was almost addicted to it. So yeah, I uh, the first opportunity I got was probably a year after I went to that pit school and got a job at a team, did a few races for free, which hindsight looking back on it was not the smartest thing to do working for free, but uh, it was an opportunity for me. And that's all I saw was an opportunity. I was like, I just need to get my foot in the door because I know if I can get in there, yep. I'm going to be fine. And uh, I worked for that team for four years and uh, got let go. Because so the pit crew contract, like we have contracts, each one of us is an individual, you know, we're, we're just like any other sport. So individual contractors. So a team will actually hire you for a length of term, whether it be one year, three years, whatever. And when that term is up, you re, you go and re, renegotiate, you know, you either stay with the team, renegotiate, or you leave and go somewhere else. Um, so it's, it can be competitive, but you're always you're always looking for better opportunities. And uh, I left that team, went to another team, got a good opportunity there. Uh, won a, my first cup race at uh, Richard Childress Racing, which was awesome. And uh, then I got an opportunity to go pit for Kyle Busch at Joe Gibbs Racing. And uh, he drove that M&M's car for a while. And that was absolutely the highlight at the time of I've made it like Uh this guy is at the peak of his racing ability. And as a pit crew, we were, we were on top of it. We were almost unbeatable for four years and it was an absolute dream come true because I grew up watching him race and he was dominating back then. So to have an opportunity to be a part of that was just unbelievable. Nice. Nice. So kind of, 
I'm sure there's so much that goes into it, but just walk me through the process of when that car comes into the pit and all right, it's one, two, three, go. And you guys are going, what, what's happening? What are you, what are you doing? Yeah. So, uh, car gets to one pit stall behind you. So if you're in pit stall one, once they get to pit stall two, you're allowed to jump off the wall. And by that time, the car is going, you know, I don't know, 20, 30 miles an hour still. So you jump out in front of that car and he's coming in and he's supposed to stop on a mark. They have a sign for him to stop on and he's supposed to stop on that sign. And based on where that sign is, everyone's kind of getting in position to start servicing the car as soon as it stops. Because the time starts as soon as you get into the box and it leaves as soon as the car hits the ground again or the time stops as soon as it hits the ground. So anytime you can attack that car and start working on it before someone else does, that's you're gaining time on your competition. So for me, I'm taking this giant big uh, lug wrench gun in my hand. And a car comes in, and I'm trying to get that thing onto the right front hub before the car stops. So, like, the car's actually sliding, and I'm trying to get the gun onto the wheel and pull the trigger to get the big lug nut off before the car even stops. Because, like I said, time is money, and you're just trying to – you want to start before everybody else because then you can be done before everybody else. Yep. So – uh, get the gun onto the hub, pull the trigger, get the lug nut off. And while it's, this is the way the sport evolved. It used to be five lug nuts. You kind of hit them and pull the wheel off. Now everyone has kind of switched and you're actually taking the lug nut off while you're trying to pull the wheel at the same time. So you have two hands doing two totally separate things. And by being able to do that, we were able to shave, you know, a half a second off of our right side time. So it's just trying to figure out, like, everyone, like, if you hit a stopwatch and you watch a second go by, that's really fast. Yeah. A second for us is an eternity. Like, we're talking tens of seconds and, you know, hundreds of tens of seconds. Yeah. So anything we can do to kind of shave that time down, that's what we're trying to do. So the right front tire comes off. It's my responsibility to get it back to the wall. So I get to pull it out of the fender, turn it, and I absolutely just, I mean, I'm throwing it like a major league baseball pitcher. I'm just hucking that thing back to the wall as fast as it can go. And uh, there's a lot of things going on, but the Jackman then takes the right front tire after he jacks the car up, puts it on for me. I tighten that one up. Once I'm done tightening that one up, run around to the left side, and we do the whole process over again. Car comes up, old tires come off, new tires go on. And by the time it's over, you know, you've hardly breathed. It's been nine, ten seconds max, and the car's already gone. So it is, it's definitely an adrenaline pumping situation. Uh, but it's also a situation where you have to be in your head. It's kind of like the situation, you know, you have, you know, you're out whitetail hunting and you have that buck walking in and the anticipation of that deer coming into the shooting lane mm-hmm. is like when the car is coming down pit road, you're watching it and you're anticipating and you're getting like, Oh, this is going to happen. This car's coming or Hey, this is coming. This animal's coming. I got to get ready. And then you get to the point where you draw the bow back. That's the point where I'm jumping off the wall and the anticipation and just the nerves and everything yep. you have going on all at once. And you're trying to manage expectation, nerves, anxiety, and use that as fuel to kind of just make a good shot or make a good pit stop. So there's a lot of correlation between it. And I feel like that has helped me in the hunting situation because I'm exposed to it so much that it's not that when it happens, I'm kind of just inoculated to it, but mm-hmm. I understand that it's happening and I understand that I can control it and use it and not be, you know, out of my mind. Definitely. How many pit stops on average are you doing during a race? 
Uh, it's racetrack dependent, but I would say on average we're probably doing six to seven. Some races we might do three. Some races we might do 12. Uh, it just depends on the track. So some tracks are more abrasive on tires and tires mean a lot more. And then other tracks we go to like the super speedways at Daytona's and Talladega's tires don't mean anything. It's just how much gas you have in the car. So you just, you run it out, you run it until that thing's out of gas and then you come in and pit it. Nice. Nice. Are there certain tracks that, you know, like you're just going to be in for a rough weekend cause you're going to have to do a ton of pit stops. Oh, those are, those are the ones we look forward to. Those are the ones in the calendar that we all have circled because, I mean, we're all athletes. We all want the ball in the fourth yeah. quarter. You know, we want to be able to play. So we look at tracks where there's a lot of tire wear, where you're going to use a lot of pit stops and you're going to do a lot. Those are the ones where we kind of get like, oh, man, here we go. We're going to Phoenix. You know, we're getting ready to go to Darlington. We're getting ready because that's an opportunity for us to shine. Yeah. I will say sense. the hardest in racing, the hardest place to pass cars is on the racetrack itself. Okay. <laughs> oh, excuse me. So the easiest place to pass race cars is in the pit stall. So if you go 30 laps on the racetrack, you might pass three cars, but you can come down pit road once and we could pass four cars on one pit stop in, you know, tens of seconds. Mm -hmm. So the easiest and the most, the biggest X factor during the races is on pit road. So that's a great opportunity. Some people get that pressure and they just, they can't handle it well. And other people like the team I'm on right now with the 24, we thrive on that. We want that ball. We want to be able that car to come down and we want to affect the race in a positive manner. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I've, I've seen your social media. It looks like you guys have had a pretty successful last couple of weeks. Yeah, we've, uh, we're two for two. We went and won Las Vegas and we won that on a late race pit stop. Uh, you know, we got a situation where we were second, our teammate was first and the caution came out with three to go beat him off pit road, which correlated into a race win. Those are, that's like the ultimate. That's like kicking a field goal to win the Super Bowl for us. Yep. And then this week, we kind of got in the same situation. We were running fourth. Caution came out at the end of the race. They made a great call in the pit box. We took two tires, and uh, that put us on the front row, and it gave us a shot to win. And for the second week in a row, we were able to capitalize on it. Nice, nice. All right, one question I've always had about, like, the, the tire changing process. What happens with that? the lug nut that you pull off does that stay on the ranch is there a new one attached to the new tire how does that work so in the current configuration we have with the big one lug nut hub the actual lug nut stays inside the socket of the gun okay uh, if it comes out we have a spare that we carry like i carry it on my chest if you see me on social media you'll see a big you know yellow lug nut on my chest we keep it there uh, because usually when those things fall out of the socket, they're impossible to find. They either roll under the car or they're 30, 40 feet away. So you want to keep one as close as you can mm -hmm. to mitigate time loss. Nice. And then what about when it was the old system with like the five lug? Well, how was that working? Oh, uh, when it was a five lug, those, the, those lug nuts were one and done. We'd glue them up on the wheel before the race. And okay. then when you came in and did pit stops, we'd just hit them off and they'd go flying all over the place and we never used them again. It was one of those parts. I mean, sure, it wasn't cheap. I think they were like a dollar fifty a lug nut, and cool. we'd go through three hundred of them in a race. But uh, that's just the expense of doing business, I guess. Yeah. So those those were like attached to the wheel, and you were yeah. Those were attached to the wheel, and then when we came in to change them, they just got okay. distributed all over the ground. That makes sense. That makes sense. Do you have any plans of? I mean, obviously, you're having a ton of success 
with NASCAR where you're at, but do you have interest of going to like an F1 or anything like that? Or do you like where you're at? Uh, I like where I'm at. I don't think that that, I think, I don't know if anyone's really ever made that transition. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I would want to do it either. Uh, that schedule, yeah. like I know we, we travel every weekend, but you know, the furthest we'll go is uh, Fontana, California or Sonoma, California. Yep. Those guys are traveling the globe. And when they're there, they're there for a few weeks. And like, I know it sounds, you know, really cool. Oh, you're going to all these awesome places. But speaking from someone who's in a sport that travels a lot. Yeah. The only thing that we really see when we go to a lot of these cities is we see the hotels and the airports and the racetrack. Uh, we don't get a lot of time to go out, do things, enjoy it. And even if you do get time to go out, you're only going out to, you know, grab a bite to eat really quick. You're not going out because you have a job to do the next day. So you're not spending all night out partying or, you know, enjoying the sights. So nice. nice. How much like do you have like practice days or anything like that? Or is it all just kind of like act the actual race type thing? No, so we, we definitely practice. Uh, I will say my job at Hendrick Motorsports is the front tire changer on the 24. That is my sole job. I don't do anything else. I'm very specialized in what I do. So we uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday are usually our practice days. And so we'll get to the shop at 7 a.m. We'll get 30, 40 minutes to loosen up. We'll do a pit practice for about an hour. And then we'll work out for about an hour, hour and a half. Then we'll watch film for about an hour from the previous week's race and figure out, you know, where we can get better. Interesting. Yeah, I I mean, I didn't know, and I'm sure a lot of people didn't know that that all went into it. I had no idea that you guys were watching film and all that stuff. And that's Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm not going to compare it to football, but it, it, for a comparison, it's a lot like that. You know, what we do is very – very specialized. You don't see a quarterback who's, you know, going to line up as a cornerback during the, you know, practice and just, or a safety and just, you know, kind of fart around. Like what we do is very specific and what we, the way we can impact a race is very meaningful. So uh, over the last probably decade, teams have seen that, realized that and taken that into consideration and really, mm -hmm. you know, put an effort to make us as best as we can and invest a lot of resources into us to get as much out of us as possible. Nice. When you guys are working out, is it like job specific workouts or is it kind of just a general fitness type workout? Uh, we do like a general fitness type workout, but we do do a lot of things that are very position specific. So like I turn one way all the time. I'm always opening and turning to my right. So I'm very right side dominant. Mm -hmm. So we do a lot of working out to, you know, kind of balance that out, balance asymmetries out in the body and do things that are very, you know, quick reaction, a lot of speed and agility drills, because everything we do is reacting and reacting fast. Nice, nice. Cool. Well, I don't want to keep you on here too much longer. I know you said you got a phone call, so you got to jump on later today. But um, one last question that I try to ask every guest is for a book recommendation. So is there one that you got for us? There is one. It's a book that I read a long time ago when I kind of got into the you know, the pit stop stuff and really started taking it serious. It's called A Champion's Mind. It was a phenomenal book that really opened my eyes to a lot of things that really helped excel my career. Nice. Nice. Yeah, I'll have to check it out. I've, I do enjoy those like mental, like, like that champion's mindset type book, you know, those sports psychology type books. I do enjoy reading those. I think there's a lot to learn from them. So. 
I'll definitely yeah, it wasn't it like a like a you know like a huge motivational book, but it was a lot of tools that yeah. I was able to pick up that really they translate a lot. Even when I'm doing the the indoor archery stuff, there's a lot of visualization stuffs and a lot of self talk stuff that I learned from that that I've used for the last decade now that has really helped excel me in my career. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think you could look at that at any pro level athlete. I mean, obviously there is the physical aspect to it, but the mental aspect that separates your pro athletes from, you know, even your amateur level athletes is a, is a big change there. Yeah. Once you get to the top, everyone's physically capable of being just as fast, jump just as high as everybody else. So it's who it's what separates you between the ears. Absolutely. Cool, man. Well, Jeff, thanks for coming on before I let you go. Tell people how they can find you, find your YouTube, social media, all that stuff. Yeah, so I'm on Instagram at Jeff Cordero underscore, and I also have a YouTube channel. If you just search Jeff Cordero, uh, that's going to be me. So I appreciate it if you guys went and subscribed to those. Absolutely. Cool, man. Well, Jeff, thanks for coming on. Um, Good luck with the rest of your guys' race season, and good luck this hunting season. Yeah, thank you for having me on, Caleb. It's been a blast. Uh, I love the show that you got, and I can't wait to hear what you have coming up for the rest of the year. Thank you, man. All right, well, I'll talk to you later. Have a good weekend. Sounds good. See. All right, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed that podcast with Jeff Cordero. I definitely had a good time talking with him. If you guys are into archery at all, go check out his YouTube page. He's putting on some really good content over there, both with hunting and target archery stuff. And if you guys are into NASCAR at all, go check out his Instagram. He's always posting pictures and videos and stuff of what he's doing as his day job as part of a NASCAR pit crew team. So go check that out. Again, make sure you guys give the podcast a like, a follow, a share, all those good things. And then check out the podcast on social media. It's barely underscore backcountry underscore podcast on Instagram. And then my personal is c.dillashaw. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'll see you guys on the next one.